Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. Before we get started today, just a quick shout out to our friends at the Scottish Rural Development Program, uh, the Farm Advisory Service there. We're, we're running a webinar with them, or they're running a webinar that I'm speaking at on the 20th of Feb at 7.30pm local. That is in Scotland, so it's going to be, I think I'm going to be in Australia, so it'll be 6.30 in the morning in Aussie. But uh, we're talking foot rot and fly strike resistance as part of their sustainable sheep systems uh, webinar series so yeah looking forward to chatting with our friends in the uk then uh you can jump on their website and and register anyone that was listening in the uk or i guess you can even if you're not you can probably bust in there and, and have a listen anyway uh we're going to talk for about half an hour then have plenty of opportunity for questions so looking forward to that uh this week we've got Penny, Dr. Penny Schultz on the show. Penny farms in South Australia with her husband, Jason, has had lots of different roles in the industry, did a PhD in sort of adoption of technology for farmers. She's uh, passionate about genetics like a few of us around here. And, uh, and we, yeah, we just go through her story, I guess, and we talk a little bit generally about sort of, yeah, I guess, adoption of genetics and technology generally and talk about her, her various roles in the industry. So we'll, we'll get on with that interview. Welcome back to Ed Shepherd and welcome Penny Schultz along to the show. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Uh, great to have you along after a bit of a gestation period, as some of these some of our guests are. Uh, Penny, you're there in South Australia. It'd be great to just hear, I guess, a bit about your background, how you ended up farming alongside your family there in, in the Lumstone Coast in South Australia. And, uh, but yeah, maybe, maybe how you ended up passionate about ag in the first place, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I went to um, a really cool agricultural high school right in the middle of Adelaide, CBD. So um, I didn't grow up on a farm. My dad did, um, but his parents moved off the farm to look for opportunity that they weren't getting in the country. And that's funny that another sort of generation on, I went out into rural areas to find opportunity for, for the areas that are really interested me. But I went on to do a, um, a Bachelor of Agriculture in um, Animal Science but um, ended up as a pasture agronomist and that took me um, around the place doing a fair bit of work either in the southeast or in the southwest of Victoria and um, mostly with, with dairy farmers and I loved dairy cows at the time including genetics and even used to show dairy cows. Not many people know that. But Oh, it's it's quite infectious. Um, if you if you love showing cattle, 
And um, yeah, I suppose my love for genetics grew and I wanted to do a bit more study as well. And so I went on to do some more postgrad study at the University of New England and which led to a PhD. But in amongst all that, I ended up um, marrying a local farmer in a little district called Field in the limestone coast who also happened to love um, cattle, sheep and genetics. So it was a little little match made in made in heaven um, sometimes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so um, my husband Jason and I, we um, have a sheep and beef operation, I suppose, in the upper part of the limestone coast and we raise our family there as well. But we breed um, first cross ewe lambs, which for those that are not into sheep as much as me, that's a um, merino borderlester cross, which are then sold on as breeders to put a secondary cross over those. But we sell them as ewe lambs and they're joined as ewe lambs as well. And um, and then we also used to have a, a beef stud business as well, so producing bulls, females, embryos, semen that got sold not just in Australia but also into New Zealand and into Indonesia. And, um, yeah, uh, now after running my own side business as well for a while, I now work for the University of Adelaide in their SA Drought Hub Agency. So that's about working with farmers to help build their business resilience to drought but also just climate change and climate variability. Yeah, excellent and yeah, a familiar story. Get, uh, well, not a familiar story but, yeah, getting getting that, that passion from somewhere, that spark from, from school and then flow through and often it's through showing cattle or something where you meet somebody and, and then everything goes from there. But if we drill into, I guess, yeah, with that passion of genetics and, and obviously you're sourcing some well-known borderless genetics there in, um, of Linton mm-hmm. is to, to, to fuel that, I guess, value for your for your client. But I guess, yeah, what have you learned over those years of, of how well farmers are applying their genetic principles to their farms? Yeah, I mean, it's highly variable and I guess um, in farming there's so much you can't control. So you try and look for the information where you can get it and when it comes to breeding animals, the breeding values that we have in in the system, whether it's sheep or cattle, um, that's the information we do know. So that's what, what we use it quite heavily and there's always that challenge, right, of, breeding better each generation so that gives you well that's where we get our buzz from I guess and um, having a bit of pride in the stock that you produce that they're really productive that they're efficient that they're profitable and you know these days we're now going to have to start thinking about are they sustainable as well that's the next challenge and being able to buy from a breeder um, like the Arnie's who um, you know their passion's bigger than ours which I didn't think was was um, possible but it certainly is and um, quite progressive as well where it's not just about breeding for what animals should look like as a breed but what the industry needs and what markets need and that they suit their clients needs as well and um, I've come to terms with the fact that not all farmers that I work with are perhaps as passionate about genetics <laughs> as what I am. So I've done a lot of work, um, as you might know, uh, Mark, that's probably what I think that's where I met you. you you're running a um, Breadwell Fedwell pilot program on our farm a long time ago. And, um, yeah, you don't always get the same reception, but most farmers know how important it is and it's good to be able to deliver workshops to those that that feel they know it's important and be able to give them 
least the you know fundamental skills to be able to purchase the rams or the bulls that are going to suit their needs um, rather than getting wound up in the the overwhelming task of of those sort of purchases yeah i think you put it put it well where you said that you control the controllables and yeah i mean this well any season's variable and and if you look around our our listenership at the moment there's some people who are facing some pretty horrid dry times uh, uncharacteristically in parts of New Zealand and other plants have had heaps of summer rain that wasn't predicted in, in the east coast of Australia. So trying to farm under that variation is is clearly tough. But the thing we know is that every year on year we can make genetic gain and, and by by buying the right bulls and rams and, and selecting the right replacement females. So, there's, yeah, that's something that we given or we're in and out of good seasons that, that can continue to to happen so it is something that, that obviously we're clearly both passionate about and thinks thinks really important yeah i guess i don't know we sort of started i sort of started in a, an agronomy based job when when i left uni in terms of sort of understanding pastures and at the time we were doing lifetime wool project that became lifetime new management and yeah i think that grounding in in that feed base is important but also and i'm not sure if in a, you got to experience it but me seeing those the variation of how animals handle those different systems is is always fascinating, and um, we've just had Wendy uh, Wendy Rao on that talked about her resilience and stuff. But yeah, I know that you and Jason there have been pretty focused on the on the sort of I guess on a different border lester on one that's got fat and muscle in it because we know that those females are going into production systems that are often they're either cold and wet and higher stocking rate or they're hot and dry and um, tough enough anyway. So you've got to build an animal for a clientele that it probably doesn't may or may not know why that animal performs because they're buying the a female without um, a set of using it essentially but you've managed to build in the the engine room that that they get to get the value out of I suppose yeah and then the other upside of trying to put that muscle and fat and growth into the ewe lambs that are going on as breeders is that our well sounds terrible to call it a byproduct but the the weather portion of those lands um, traditionally and certainly 10, 20 years ago, hardly any processor wanted to buy them. But, you know, through breeding, we've been able to breed a, a first cross water lamb that, you know, is a really good product and grows well and finishes like any other prime lamb should. And so it's much more saleable and much more profitable if you can do that as well. Yeah, cool. And before we move on from the family business, we're obviously give Jason a plug with his, with being the chair of Lamex a big a big thing happening in in South Australia in August so uh yeah it'll be we'll no doubt talk about that more over time but yeah I know there's there'll be lots of people lining up to get themselves to South Australia it's going to be great to have Lamex back underway it's it'll be also uh an interesting household with you away doing your job and him flat out he'll be quite busy in that job no doubt yeah we're like ships in the night but um we try and help each other out and Obviously, our um, our types of work collide as well. So, yeah, but Lamex is certainly, I mean, we would have been excited about it even if we weren't involved in it, but um, it's great to see it back on the agenda and um, be able to celebrate a great product. Yeah, for sure. So if we move on to what keeps you off farm these days, and, and that's the livestock technical specialist there at the SA Drought Hub at University of Adelaide, um, lots of other sort of board and advisory roles as well so just yeah talk us through what you know i guess what you're up to these days and and what drives you to keep that driving force for for livestock production yeah so my role here with the with the hub is very much focused on 
farmer adoption rather than you know more research i mean there's a lot more sort of demonstration type trials happening but a lot of more either farmer facing workshop kind of work or um, developing new projects that south australia might be able to lead or we can have things that go right across borders that isn't just genetics though so a lot of it might be about filling seasonal feed gaps or it could be around business golly gosh we've got um, things to do with service providers as well like capacity building but also outside of that um, I do a bit of mentoring and coaching with um, young people and rural women's networks as well and going on with the climate kind of environmental theme I sit on the Premier's Climate Change Council here in South Australia and also chair the Lancaster Coast Landscape Board and for other regions they call those NRM boards or catchment management authorities, those sort of things. And, yeah, so sustainable primary production is an area of passion for me and how that intertwines with being productive and profitable. Interesting. So, yeah, exposure to lots of different people within the industry, different groups, and I guess we've been through hopefully through a pretty tough period in livestock with with prices not not doing what they what they could or what they we would like them to do and and certainly seen a bit of that recovery in Australia whereas probably still waiting for that here in New Zealand but uh and and probably the west west coast as well in in Australia but I guess yeah with with knowing what you know seeing what you see yeah, what is your vision for ag what are the exciting things that are that we should be looking to to in the future or what you see coming that the average farmer might not see coming and and uh yeah I guess the yeah, like it's easy to all think it's doom and gloom, but there's some pretty exciting things happening in the industry. Yeah, I think we're at a bit of a tipping point at the moment. Um, farming and agriculture, in particularly livestock production, was seen as this um, problem that needed to be fixed, which is quite daunting when you're when you're one of them and you're busy trying to be a great food producer, and then you were seen as this problem. But I, I think that sort of table's turning a bit in quite a few settings where. Know we are actually part of the solution, and and I hope it actually goes further than that because I think we're part of an important production cycle as well, and we shouldn't rest on our laurels, but we should be working towards sustainability goals, but also being recognised for that and being acknowledged for it. But I think one of the the real challenges is with what we've got at the moment. There's only so many levers farmers can pull to. You know, everyone's quite focused on carbon, so that's what I'll talk about. But, you know, there's only so many levers we can pull to be more efficient and um, reduce our emissions intensity and our general carbon footprint. And a lot of farmers are going down that pathway now, which is fantastic. And there's generally um, kickbacks on your bottom line as well if you can pull those levers. And then we've got a few extra ones where it might be about planting something or supplementing something or um, having a tree project that might give you a little bit more. And I'm seeing some good stuff from it, the genetics perspective as well with sustainability indexes and we've now got that in the Merino job. So I'm seeing more levers, which is really good. But I think if if we're going to need to do some serious reductions in emissions as far as livestock goes, it's going to have to be another thing that we don't currently have in our arsenal. I mean, we're all talking about some red seaweed, you know, your asparagopsis, but that's a fair way away still, like to be widespread commercially available for all farmers. And, yeah, so I think we need some serious investment 
that needs to go into those next big additional new technologies that we might not even know about yet if we want to see that, you know, if we want to see the dial seriously tick over, that's what's going to need to, to happen. And I'm excited that might be happening, but I think we also need to be realistic that in the next 10 years we're just going to have to keep working towards what we can do and and keep investing in the, the new things that we don't currently have. Yeah, excellent. And we've been talking a bit over the last six to 12 months around how we work with farmers to, I guess, implement EID. EID is coming to Australia in a compulsory form and uh, lots of lots of individuals probably aren't that excited about that that concept of having another burden on, on a bottom line that's already pretty tight. Obviously, you and I are, are keen on how we help farmers not see that or try and find ways to to use that opportunity or as an opportunity rather than rather than a cost and, and encourage farmers to sort of start bringing a bit more data into livestock production which is which is probably sorely missing in in a in a sheep production system across big chunks of the listenership oh to- totally agree it is easier said than done <laughs> so i don't want to be yeah. um and yeah. a lot of um businesses are half set up for it already anyway so the step might not be that big, but handling that amount of data probably is. But I think we probably do need to go down a bit more of a prescriptive way of farming in the sheep sector rather than have this mob mentality and just hoping that everyone's going to reach their potential and, and be efficient and productive for us. It doesn't quite work that way anymore. Everyone's got to perform. You don't want those passengers, as um, as we hear a lot. And EID is a a really good tool to be able to do that. I, I still think a lot of the technology is a bit clunky. Yeah, you know, if you're doing stuff in the in the yards and you're doing your auto draft, I sort of look at it from a big picture perspective and essentially um, farmers are almost doing basic coding to auto draft sheep, you know, based on something they put in previously. Um, and, I, and I think, um, you know, there's probably point of sale programs in a beauty salon that are probably a bit more advanced than that. So I think, you know, agriculture, we always, we cop it as farmers, I think, but we're just not digitally savvy enough and farmers need to get digital literacy training. I'm like, no, 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 they don't. I think their digital technology needs to catch up with everything else. So, you know, farmers are fine using iPhones and laptops to get by with other parts of their life. And then when it comes to technology, whether it's, physical tech or um, software to do with their sheep enterprise, it's clunky and it's not intuitive and it doesn't talk to things sometimes and it does others and we've just come to accept that that's what happens even though it costs us $30,000 to set it up. So I, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a money thing. I think that there hasn't been enough money in that sector to warrant people to invest and make things better. So maybe that will change over time and that might help farmers use their EID-based information better when it becomes more like pressing a button that says, you know, score three U's, go this way, and it's, a, it's an icon, not a, you know, typing in numbers into a spreadsheet to make sure it goes left and right and whatever because other things in our life, even a self-serve checkout seems to be a bit more advanced. So, you know, I think... Our equipment and our technology needs to catch up with what our expectations are. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think, yeah, this morning I had a, had a chat with a 
guy in Ireland who's developed a, or him and his him and his dad have developed an app that will tell you which which sheep to drench based on their live weight change, and it's all on an app and it's driving the auto draft. And you just like it was probably one of the one of the first examples where you just go, that's actually a a solution for a problem that's using the tech in the right way, and it's and it's really easy, and it's going at at the pace it needs to, and it's not you don't need to be yeah you don't need to be a Mark Mortimer to be able to drive it. You can just be any exactly. any, any any person coming off the street, and um, yeah, so that that sort of third party type um, solution, which yeah, I think is definitely a money problem, and the and one of the problems with it only being. Even if you nailed the market, you might sell a hundred. If you got everyone in the market, you might sell a hundred thousand versions or something. Whereas in any any consumer software, you're in the millions in in no time, kind of thing. So it's, exactly, uh, yeah, yeah. But but I think yeah, I think we are we are seeing change, and and yeah, we're not. None of us are pretending that AID is going to be the next big thing to make your money. But there are certainly ways that we can help to understand our businesses better using AID, and that's sort of what we want to explore in in some work we'll hopefully get to do one day. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> like that farmer actually saw that problem, found the bit of technology that was going to solve it for him or her, and created it, and it worked, and it's done. And other people might be able to use that too. And that is the absolute baseline of everything. Whether it's a technology company trying to launch something, or whether it's a farmer working in their business, everything needs to start with the problem. So I think some of the technology adoption lag earlier on that farmers used to get blamed for, we used to have this technology coming out that would then try and find a problem to fix and they apply the tech to that and then try and sell it on to somebody else, whereas I think now people are getting better and they're getting cleverer that they've got to start with the problem, then find the tech to fix it, and then you can go to a farmer with a really good value proposition that's easy to communicate. But even at farm level, I think farmers can actually sit down and make their own problem list. We've done it in our business we did a couple of years ago. And what's the stuff that we hate doing that's, you know, just such a bug there or it takes too long to do and that's why everyone hates it. And you go through that list and then prioritise them and then do some research to work out is there a piece of technology or is there a change, a physical change in our lane way or something that's going to make that, that easier. Um, and start working through it that way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. And I listened to a book called Buy Back Your Time, which which was which was pretty good, uh, and and prompted me to make a few changes in our business. We've still got plenty to go, but um, it's a long list of improvements we can make as well. But yeah, yeah, those concepts of yeah things that yeah it seems like an investment, but if you value your time any more than about a dollar an hour, then it doesn't often doesn't take long to pay for a lame way or something where you're having yeah. to hold sheep off and. And you can't just yeah the, some of those labour saving things on farm are not necessarily crazy money yet can have can have big impacts on not just I guess not just how much money you're making or whatever but half the time it's quality of life like you're actually yeah you're in inside before the kids are in bed and that sort of stuff rather than rather than still yeah. out there putting and just their life your sanity, sanity sometimes or even peace of mind you know a lot of the water monitoring systems now a lot of people don't even, they're not even crunching the numbers anymore around those sort of systems it's like I need to know now, like what my water's doing. I need to know now if there's a problem. I don't want to know when there's an oasis in the middle of the paddock. I've got a water problem, and that's it's like a peace of mind thing when you go away on the weekend or go off to football or something that you've got all that information that you need. Yeah, yeah, and I do. I've sort of talked about this 
probably ignores him really. But yeah, the, we often think that everyone's looking for something to to make sense in the bottom line. But yeah, often it's I don't know how I invest in private life. Like half the stuff you spend it on is just yeah, just peace of mind, or you just you just don't want to have that problem. So it doesn't really matter within reason. You're not that worried about the cost or whether there's any return on it. You just you just want to be able to have a restful weekend, so you don't want to. You want to know that cows haven't broken a or cock yeah. off, and you got water going everywhere, or and the tanks are empty, or the windmill's not turning, or whatever it is. So it's um, yeah. yeah, and that doesn't change the economic business, but it changes how much you enjoy that time away. That's right, absolutely excellent. How's things otherwise in South Australia? Is the uh, this will be going out in a couple of weeks, so it might have it might have dried off a bit before then. But is it you've been getting a heap of rain, that unseasonal rain, and looking good. Yeah, we had um, a fair bit of unseasonal rain basically from, oh, gosh, mid-November through to um, through some of January. Not all regions got it. I will acknowledge that. There are still a few areas of SA that are pretty dry, but other areas that, um, you know, a lot of uh, restockers got a bit excited about because suddenly they had feed. But it, it is compensating for a bit of a average or below-average spring that um, many people suffered in the particularly in the southeast. But yeah, no, it's looking pretty good. Uh, I will admit we've probably got more feed than what we do most summers, which certainly, again, when I were talking about quality of life, certainly takes the pressure off if you've got feed in the paddock and you're not feeding out silage and hay every day. Yeah, and the stock certainly do better when they've got quality feed in the paddock, whether that's green in the middle of summer. Yeah, yeah. So you've got a loosened primrose sort of base on some of your pastures or is it? Yeah, and a bit of velt grass as well, but yeah, predominantly yeah. Um, dry land loosen. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty sandy country, but um, loosen does well on it. Yeah, that's no, proper sand there. Yeah. It's like yeah. beach sand. <laughs> 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 yeah, people will say, I've got sandy soil. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. it's the good stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, excellent. Well, um, yeah, we'll leave it there. We'll get, let you get back on with your busy day and uh yeah thanks very much for having a chat and look forward to seeing you at Lamex if not before yep absolutely Lamex 7 to 9 of August in Adelaide 2024 Jason will buy you a beer for saying that oh probably no he won't actually (laughs) yeah excellent (laughs) thanks very much Mark thanks Benny Thanks again to our mates at Heinegger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment they understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd podcast.